Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey there Nationals fans and welcome to the very first Believe in Nationals podcast. I'm your host Blake Finney. Coming up later on this edition of the podcast, I've got not one but two guests for you. First we have Matt Wyrick from NBC Sports Washington as we briefly discuss the season as a whole before jumping into the upcoming trade deadline. After that we have Carlos Calazzo of Baseball America joining the podcast to discuss the Nationals 2022 draft class. But before we get to that, I just wanted to do a quick introduction to myself and what you can expect from this podcast moving forward. As for myself, and for those who don't know me, I'm Blake Finney, and as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm from England. I've been an avid fan of baseball since I was about 8 or 9, as my dad was a Cubs fan growing up, and passed his love of the game on to me. As I got older, I started to watch more and more MLB, and even played, managed, and umpired for six years back in England before moving out to America in 2017. In terms of my work covering the Nationals, I've been writing about the team since 2018, and I'm currently at SB Nation's national site, Federal Base, where I've been covering the team since 2019, including that famous World Series run. Things are a little bit different for the Nationals now, but you can expect this podcast to cover it all. The schedule for the podcast to begin with will be a bit unorthodox with an important trade deadline coming up for the team, hence why this episode is being released on a Friday, and we hope to have another episode out for you next Wednesday, the day after the trade deadline. Once the craziness of the MLB trade deadline has passed, though, I'll initially be releasing a new podcast every Monday morning with a wide range of guests joining me to cover everything Nationals, and that will be the case until the podcast co-host comes aboard, who will be a former Nationals player. So make sure you subscribe to the Believe in Nationals podcast wherever you get your podcasts, be that Apple Podcast, Spotify, or you can find us on the Believe website. Anyway, that's enough about the podcast, and it's time to talk some Nationals and the upcoming trade deadline with my first guest, Matt Wyrick of NBC Sports Washington. Now joining me on the podcast is former federal baseball writer and current NBC Sports Washington Nationals writer, Matt Wyrick. How are you doing today, Matt? Doing well, Blake. Thanks for having me on and congrats on the new pod. Thanks, man. There's some big news around baseball, but we'll get to that in a bit. And because this is our first podcast, I wanted to really start at a high level before we get into some of the big news. So obviously the expectations for this team were pretty low coming into the season, but it feels like they may not even reach that low bar at this point. So if you had to grade the national season so far based on those low expectations, how do you think they do? And what are some of the big storylines for you so far this season? Yeah, you know, I think that I think anybody who was optimistic about the Nationals might have thought they could be, you know, a fourth place team in the division. If, you know, one of the, the teams above them kind of had a bad year, they could, if things went right, you know, kind of crack that little bit upper echelon of the bad teams. So that certainly hasn't happened. The Nationals entered the all-star break and right now have the worst record in baseball and the worst run differential in baseball. There really isn't an argument there. Uh, as to them being much better than where they are in the standings. So if I had to give them a grade, it would probably have to be a D. I mean, we have seen, you know, encouraging signs from KBIT Ruiz and Josiah Gray, but those were the two players that we knew coming into this year had to show some encouraging signs. And there really haven't been a whole lot of other players on the Nationals who are going to be a part of this team for a long time that have shown that they are going to be potential building blocks 
obviously with what Cole Juan Soto situation being left alone. Lane Thomas has had a pretty nice year, you know, for what we thought we, we'd see from him. Luis Garcia has come up and, and provided some nice flashes here offensively uh, that show some promise. But other than that, you know, all of these bullpen arms that they've cycled through, the guys in the rotation, nobody has really stuck around to the point where, okay, you can count on them to be part of this Nationals team in 2023 and beyond. So I'd have to give them a D. They have definitely not met expectations for this year. And, and certainly this is going to be looked back on as one of the worst years in franchise history. But it'll take some doing given some of the hundred loss seasons that this, uh, this team has gone through since moving to DC. I think for me, one of the biggest storylines is how bad this team has been defensively and pitching kind of combined. They go hand in hand a bit. I think by most metrics, they're one of the worst teams in the league and obviously that then affects the pitch and obviously the pitching doesn't help itself when you've got the likes of say Patrick Corbin and Eric Feddy who are seemingly always on the cusp of doing something and then decide to give up eight runs every now and again but um, how do you see that playing out because you would have thought that the way they brought in a lot of veterans that wouldn't have been one of the speed bumps they would have had to have gone through like if they brought Luis Garcia up who has had his defensive struggles but you've seen struggles from these veterans as well how do you think that's affected the team? Yeah, you know, I, we thought that coming into the year, defense might be a strength for this team. Like you said, with these veterans, Alcides Escobar, Cesar Hernandez, these are former gold glovers. I mean, guys that had reputations for being dependable on the defensive end and neither had been very good defensively uh, as starters. Of course, Michael Franco has been one of the worst defensively graded players in all of baseball this year over at third base. So this infield has had a lot of problems there. Victor Robles has seemingly taken a bit of a step back defensively. Juan Soto as well. Really just hasn't been even a guy on this team really holding things down. Even Bear Ruiz, who is showing a lot of signs of being a good defensive catcher or franchise catcher for a long time. You know, he's had his rookie mistakes here and there, and he has had a few errors. He's overthrown a few times uh, up trying to throw out runners. So overall, it's been up and down. You know, I think that makes these losses frustrating. You, you know, you've had a, very few games where, the Nationals have been within one run and they've been able to catch up in the late innings. It seems more often than not, they're down one run going into the seventh. And then all of a sudden a bad defensive play turns a one run inning into a three run inning and a game just seems out of reach. We've seen that time and time again with this Nationals team this year. And it, it makes these losses just feel all the more frustrating. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that fans could have been forgiven for coming into this season with obviously low expectations and they don't have the talent that they did a few years ago and obviously talent wise are one of the worst teams in baseball but like you say it's kind of how they're losing with all these defensive miscues and um just playing sloppy baseball in general which um is particularly interesting for someone like Davey Martinez who tries to emphasize the little things but evidently this season it's not quite played out that way no no I mean that's always kind of been Davey's MO is just focus on the game at hand and it doesn't seem like that it's been happening I mean it's hard to when the losses pile up like this you know, you, you talk to guys and it gets frustrating, you know, answering the same questions day in, day out, having to go out there and seeing, looking up the scoreboard and seeing these terrible numbers next to your, your stat lines. It's, it's not going to help, you know, these guys pull together and, and play winning baseball. And that's just hasn't been the brand that Davey Martinez has been looking for. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, but I think we've, uh, we've stalled for long enough before we get onto the, the big news, which is obviously why is Cesar Hernandez still hitting in the top two? Uh, I kid, I kid, it's uh, Juan Soto. Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic obviously reported earlier this month that Juan Soto turned down a mammoth 
uh, 15-year, 440 million contract extension from the Nationals. And now, because of that, the Nationals are reportedly entertaining trading one side. Whether that actually happens or not it remains to be seen. Uh, based on all the reporting so far, Mike Rizzo's comments from yesterday says that they are definitely listening. He definitely didn't bat that away and said they weren't. Um, but do you ultimately think that he gets moved before the trade deadline in um, just a few days' time? Or do you think it's more likely that to happen in the off-season when there should be more clarity on the ownership front, maybe more time for the Nationals to scout some of these prospects that they might acquire? Yeah, I think my answer has changed to that question by the day. Uh, but right now, it feels like a coin flip as, as to either he's traded or not. If I had to, to tell you right now, I would guess that he's traded. It seems like we've been trending in that direction uh, ever since the All-Star game and, and home run derby debacle. Uh, with the news coming out just as he was being thrust into the national spotlight. Uh, you know, the, the second half here, we've seen him come out to a bit of a sluggish start. It seems like he's kind of checked out a little bit. Uh, so, you know, it, it seems like we've been going that way. It didn't, you know, the Nationals are going to have to be blown away by an offer. I think that's the biggest thing. But from what we've seen from, from multiple reports around the league is there are teams willing to meet that asking price. So uh, it certainly seems like the choice is going to be up to the Nationals do we pull the trigger now or do we wait till the stop season a new owner is here and we can kind of reevaluate from there? And I think the, the reasoning behind it makes sense in trying to listen now when a team acquiring him is going to get three pennant races as opposed to two in the offseason. Obviously, there are still benefits of trading him in the offseason. It's not a similar situation to Josh Bell, who we're probably going to talk about in a bit later, where the Nationals basically have no shot of re-signing him at this point. He's going to go to free agency this offseason, whereas... For one side, there are potential avenues that he could stay in the offseason if new ownership comes in and hands him 500 million over 14 years or whatever to get what he wants. So it's not the end of the world if they don't trade him, but obviously they're trying to maximize his return if they trade him now. Who do you think are some of the teams that we should be looking out for as potential fits for where one Soto ends up? Obviously, we hear some of the big names like the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Cardinals, the Padres. So who do you think is most likely and which team do you think could be a potential mystery team that isn't getting talked about as much as some of those leading candidates? Yeah, I mean, honestly, all 30 teams could uh, use Juan Soto in the middle of their lineup. He is just that kind of player and a player that I think a lot of teams would make room for if they could. You, you mentioned those, those four names seem to be the, the big ones that have kind of jumped out. A name that I, I'm surprised we haven't heard more, the Houston Astros. You know, the Astros have the talent, not just in the farm system, but young controllable contracts at the major league level that make me think they could offer the Nationals a package of players that maybe stands out because of how established they are. You just look at young players they have on, on long-term deals. Right now, you've got, Kyle Tucker, you have Jeremy Pena, the one of the rookie of the year candidates this year in their rotation. There's Jose Urquidy. You know, there's a lot of different players on this team uh, that, that make me think, OK, yes, they have the prospect capital to make a move like that. But they really could trade from their major league roster and really not lose a whole lot in terms of present day value. In fact, I think you would gain present day value just by adding Soto at this point. So you know, they already have been rumored to be interested in trading one of their rotation pieces already. Uh, Jose Urquidy is one who has popped out. The Nationals know him well from facing him in the World Series back in 2019. Uh, you know, somebody who could eat innings for the Nationals in the next three seasons seems like, you know, a, a potential piece that could interest them. They could always flip him later. Uh, pitching, there's always uh, playoff teams that are going to be in need of starting pitching. So, you know, if, if that's a team that is willing to meet the Nationals asking price, you can get a guy like Kyle Tucker in there 
you know, I, I think that's something the Nationals absolutely should look into. But of course, I know Nationals fans do not want to see Juan Soto in an Astros uniform. I think there are there are quite a few teams I don't want to see him in. The Mets are getting thrown around a lot. Deliberately didn't mention them in the favorites, but that's another one that would be particularly painful. What it's one thing trading him away, and then it's another seeing him fifteen times a year or whatever it is when the updated schedule comes out. The Mets farm system also just isn't very good. And it, and you know if you are, I, I think the key to this entire Soto situation here is is who are the established young players that every team is willing to give up? Because I, I feel like you can't. If you're the Nationals, you can't just trade Soto for a group of prospects. There has got to be some, you know, if you're going to trade him to the Padres, I think you got to have Jake Cronenworth in there. He's a two-time all-star. He's got, you know, three and a half years left on his deal. You know, he's 28 years old, but, you know, that's a young, controllable piece, right? You, you trade him to the Blue Jays, try to get Faux Bichette in there or Alec Manoa, you know, somebody who's already, you, you can at least have a baseline of production. You know you're going to get out of this return. And when I look at the Mets, I mean, who are they, who are they going to offer? Tyler McGill? I mean, Dom Smith, come on, man. Like, I, I just don't think that, that the Mets have the firepower to make this kind of trade, never mind the fact that the Nationals won't trade them in division to begin with. I think the, the other thing holding the Mets back is their one blue-chip prospect is a catcher, and you would think that the yep. Nationals are kind of set there with Cabo Ruiz. You're not going to make that trade and make one of those guys who is either the centerpiece of the Max Scherzer and Trey Turner deal or the centerpiece of a one Soto deal and make him essentially a backup catcher or a first baseman who may not, hit up to that position. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's interesting that you say about controllable young major leaguers. Like, I think to a point, I agree with you, where especially some of these teams like the Padres, where they have, say, C.J. Abrams, Mackenzie Gore, who have less than a year's service time, I think that's about right. But if you're looking at someone like Cronenworth, do you worry that they're getting towards the end of their arbitration and towards free agency by the time the Nationals are going to be competitive again? Because if you're trading one so you're essentially saying we're not going to be good for the next two, three seasons, potentially. No, I mean, you're absolutely right in that the window has to line up. And, you know, if you were to get a guy like Cronenworth, who's, like I said, 28, by the time he's 31, is he still going to be playing at that level? You don't know. But also his versatility right now, where he can play all over the diamond, I think that is something the Nationals could really use as they're trying to fit these pieces together into a potential roster. You know, is Luis Garcia going to play shortstop long-term? We don't know. And especially once you start to get you know, maybe Brady House comes up in the next two years and all of a sudden you're going to have to move him over because House is sticking it short or is House going to be at third? You just don't know, you know, all of these young pieces that they have, where they're going to fit in by the time they get here. Cronenworth is somebody who could adapt wherever you need him. Plus, you could try to offer him extension as soon as you trade him. I mean, they only have, you know, beside, after two years, the only guaranteed money they have on the books is Steven Strasburg's contract and then the deferred money that they're going to owe Corbin and Scherzer, you know, beyond Cor- Corbin's current deal. So I think you could go to then Cronenworth say, look, we were willing to give all this money to, to Juan Soto. Why don't we make a nice little extension offer to Jake Cronenworth, try to buy out a couple of free agency years, give him a little pay bump uh, for this arbitration. And then we make him a cornerstone of this franchise. You know, I, I think it's interesting the fact that why the nationals didn't try to resolve this Juan Soto stuff earlier and then pivot to Josh Bell. You know, why, why weren't, why aren't we hearing anything about, well, maybe we could extend Josh Bell. He's still under 30 years old. He plays solid defense. He's a switch hitter. You know, seems to, you know, do really well in this clubhouse. Josiah Gray has mentioned a lot about how he's taken him under his wing. You know, that's a very important young player uh, whose relationships should be valued. Why, why aren't we hearing anything about Josh Bell? You know, so whoever they do acquire, if it is a, a established major league player, I would expect the Nationals to do whatever they can uh, to sign that player to an extension. 
Yeah, I find, I find that interesting because I remember Mike Rizzo saying at some point in the off-season that um, someone asked him about extending Josh Bell. It might have been you, actually. Yep. And he was saying he was focused on a one Soto extension, and obviously that's not gone anywhere to this point. Have they potentially missed out on that? And I've been beating the drum for a Josh Bell extension for a while. Like you say, he fits in the clubhouse well. He's been fantastic in the community for the year and a half that he's been here. And you don't he's not really blocking anyone either. You don't have any like superstar prospect at first base who you go... Well, this is the successor to Josh Bell. The best first base prospect is probably Brandon Bossier, who's down in like high A. So you need to have something through this rebuild. You can't just trot out retreats the whole time. But do you think they've maybe going through this saga, especially the last few years, the Nationals, are they potentially going to start looking to some of these younger players to sign early extensions? Because that's something that the Nationals never really did before. I think Ryan Zimmerman is probably the only main example I can think of that. Yeah, you know, I, I've, I've been saying that all year. Like, you should go to K-Bear Ruiz right now and say, hey, can we lock you up? But you know who K-Bear Ruiz's agent is? <laughs> is Scott Boris. So I think that's unlikely to happen, unfortunately. Uh, but perhaps Josiah Gray would be interested. I mean, you know, he's been up and down this year, and certainly the home runs are something that you're going to kind of have to live with with him. But, you know, if you could lock him up for 8 to $12 million a year and, and buy a few free agent years, I think that could be really good value. Uh, but certainly, you know, we haven't seen anything on that front so far. The Nationals are trying to figure out what they want to do with Soto here. And I think the return that they get with Soto is going to determine when that next competitive window is really going to open up. Maybe we hear about Cade Cavalli getting an offer. I don't know. It's, it's, it would be a bit out of character for the Nationals to this point. They haven't, as you said, made one of these contracts before. With the history that they have in losing homegrown stars and, and how much vitriol they have received from the fan base, it might not be a bad idea. You know, you, you might be able to avoid having the next, oh, Bryce Harper is leaving or, oh, Trey Turner is leaving, Anthony Rendon, Juan Soto, by locking one of these guys up young. You know, you, you are taking some risks there. They might not pan out. You know, Scott Kingery is still cashing checks from the Phillies, and he hasn't been that guy. But, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of examples the other way, too, of these contracts really helping a, an organization, you know, build around a young player who is not eating too much of their payroll. And I think even Ryan Zimmerman mentioned it in one of his press conferences about uh, how they should lock him up earlier. But I guess that's kind of going off on a tangent. And coming back to the Soto trade story, one of the biggest storylines around the trade is whether the Nationals will include a bad contract or an albatross with that. So I don't think Steven Strasburg is potentially for that because I think he's got a full no trade. And at this point, both sides are committed to each other and just going to see this out. But Patrick Corbin has been a name that's been coming up a lot, especially in reports, even though... Mike Rizzo did say on the Sports Junkies on Wednesday that they wouldn't dilute any potential return with a bad contract, but he also said they weren't trading one toe and we're having this discussion. So do you believe that, given how many reports are coming out saying it, and what are your thoughts around potentially including Corbin in a trade? I, I, for one, don't think that you could possibly put Patrick Corbin in a Juan Soto deal. Any any kind of lessening the return that you're going to get for a franchise-changing player, I, I think, is is cheap. I mean, if you are going to trade Juan Soto, you're likely going to have a bit of a longer retool as, as Mike Rizzo or reboot, as he's called it, uh, than what they're planning right now. And Patrick Corbin's only under contract for two more seasons, two more seasons that you are very likely to be bad. You're going to need veteran pitchers to get you through that time and get you some innings. And I know that you know, we might have to talk about moving Patrick Corbin in the bullpen with how bad he's been and things like that. But if you are going to be bad, what's what's it going to hurt having him start every fifth day? That's the one thing he has done uh, these last few years is, is stay healthy. He's been able to go out there and 
you know, obviously got pulled without even getting three outs uh, in his last outing. But for the most part, he's usually giving the Nationals between five and six innings every time he's going out there. And, you know, that's valuable, especially for a team that has struggled to develop pitching and doesn't, besides Kate Cavalli, have anyone who's really knocking on the door of the major leagues yet. It's going to take a little while for some of these young arms that they have in their system to reach the majors and be ready. So why not have somebody who can help bridge? And maybe we talk about moving Corbin to the bullpen uh, halfway through next year or, or maybe down the line in that final season of his contract. But I would probably go into next season with him in the rotation, just as somebody who I know is going to go out there and every five days at least take, give my bullpen a bit of a break. Obviously, we talk a lot about Patrick Corbin with like 608 ERA the last two years, the worst among qualifiers, and it's over a full run more than the next player, Jordan Lyles. But I don't think there's a long-term baseball reason to trade Patrick Corbin or include it in the Soto deal where you're going to lessen your return a bit. Like you say... It's just to save yeah, money. It is literally just yeah. ownership driven. I think Mike Rizzo, when Mike Rizzo is talking, he's talking from his perspective and he doesn't want to include Patrick Corbin. But if the learners come to him and say, you have to include Patrick Corbin, this is our best chance to get this off the books. It's them trying to save a salary because uh, he's due 23 million this year, 24 next year, even though the learners may not be on the hook for that. There is a small chance anything can happen with this takeover talk and 35 million in 2024. But I guess the other reason is, does it help the sale of the team? If they're dead set on trading one Soto, you're potentially improving the value of the team by getting rid of that contract. But all those reasons are money related. Like you say, the baseball reasons is you may as well have someone trotting out there who will give you five, six innings. I don't think he's been on the IL since he's been with the Nationals, if I'm right. So having someone out there, you don't have a wave of starting pitching prospects. You're not going to be able to deck out your rotation and bullpen that his presence is going to hinder any of their development like you say you have Kate Cavalli you have Cole Henry who are probably going to be coming up soon but after that there's not a ton in the near future so yeah there's, there's no good baseball reason for it in my eyes yeah you know like I said it's just to save money and at this point the the, the contract is already sunk you, you've lost the most of the value there uh so you might as well ride it out you know and, and and with the state of the Nationals farm system, too, you need every bit of that prospect capital you are going to get for Soto. You know, never mind the financial aspect of it. You can't afford to take one fewer prospect because, you know, the Nationals, especially in the top half of their farm system, you take out Kate Cavalli, and I guess you can throw Cole Henry in there. But there really isn't a whole lot to get about, get excited about in double A AA or higher. You know, that's just kind of the state of things. And that's why they're so low on all these rankings It's because anybody that you are feeling like has superstar potential is 17, 18, or 19 years old at this point, you're, you're, they're too far away to truly project what they're actually going to give you and when they're going to get there. So, you know, you know, we saw with Mason Denneberg, you know, a guy who is all of a sudden just struck by injuries and just disappears from baseball for two years. That happens to guys who are, you know, in that age range. And it's just impossible to tell what they're really going to give you until they do get to that double, double A level or higher. Like you say, you're trying to improve your farm system. You don't want to lose out on any of those, um, prospects like you say and with the nationals track record of player development uh or at least recently getting from low a high a who are obviously doing pretty well the fredericksburg nationals are doing pretty well and have a promising core but once you start to get to the upper minors you see what sort of players they're going to become and i think that's where a lot of the focus on the return is going to be uh staying with the trade talk i've got 10 names for you here quick fire trade or stay give a little bit of uh all right narrative on them if you want so first up josh bell i i think this one's pretty much a slam dunk here 
trade. He's absolutely gone. I think he'll be beside Soto the best chance of giving the Nationals a solid return. So I would I would guess he's gone. This one looked a certainty maybe about a month, a month and a half ago, but Nelson Cruz. I'm going to say gone. If they were able to trade John Lester last year, surely somebody is going to bite on at least the veteran presence that Nelson Cruz brings and maybe the potential for some power off the bench. Yeah, I think it is interesting. So far this month, he's only got a 29 WRC plus. So all that hope from the hot May and June has kind of faded a little bit and potentially dented that return a bit. Uh, Next, we've got Cesar Hernandez. I'm going to say gone um trade just I, I think he you know he can play multiple positions he hasn't been great defensively and he obviously doesn't have any power that he's been bringing to the plate this year but uh you know I think he makes sense as somebody who can you know start if there's an injury and they need to kind of bridge a gap uh he's somebody who could make sense so I'll, I'll go with trade uh we've got the other Hernandez next yeah yeah I'm also going to say trade there. I think it might be tougher just given his age and, and I'm not sure how much interest there really is going to be, but being a left-handed bat, uh, you know, in the DH being on both sides of the league now, I think there might be a team out there that, that has some interest. So I'll say trade. I've said all along, they probably should, but because they've got years of control, it's going to be tough to gauge his trade value with other teams. Are you going to get enough to be motivated to move him? Because I think at his age, he's probably not going to be part of the next competitive nationals team, even if he has the control to be kind of under team control for that. Uh, the last hitter before we move on to pitchers, Victor Robles. I'm going to say stay. Uh, I think that he's on the table for trades right now, but I, I can't imagine that a team is going to give the Nationals uh, what they would believe is fair value for a former top prospect. So I would imagine he stays. Yeah, I think that it's interesting because you've got probably the most talented player on your roster, I would argue, or in terms of raw talent, the most talented. You have one Soto and um, some of his mental qualities, I suppose. But in terms of physically, Victor Robles is one of your fastest runners, got the best arm. He's got the power in there somewhere. He showed it with 19-odd home runs in 2019. So it's interesting. But at this point, at what point does the ship sail, I suppose, with Robles? I believe it already has with the 600-plus <laughs> OPS uh, in the last three years. But, you know... Who knows, man? Maybe maybe another team feels like they know, they've seen something in the numbers that makes them think they can turn it around. So we'll, mo- we'll move on to pitching next. I've got Steve Ciszek first. Uh, trade. I think he's probably the most likely of all the relievers to be traded, just given the fact he's on an expiring contract. He's been a closer before, uh, you know, doesn't have the best numbers maybe of the guys in the back end, but that veteran experience will, will weigh heavily in the minds of other GMs. Yeah, and I think there's enough of a track record, similar to Nelson Cruz, where even if they're not performing to their absolute best, I think Ciszek's still doing okay with an ERA under four, but he has that track record, and like you say, no one can get enough uh, bullpen help at this time. Uh, Another relief arm with one more year of control, Carl Edwards Jr. Yeah, you know, I think him and the guy you're probably going to mention next, I think it's between one of those two guys uh, who gets traded, but I'm sure that the Nationals will be hearing offers for him. And with him also having some veteran experience, been around a few teams throughout his career uh, and having that established track record, I think he is probably likely to go and, and maybe one of the player that you might attach with Bell to increase his return and get a top 100 prospect back. That makes sense. And I think the, the view changed because I think he only got that extra year of control because he was brought up one day late, if I'm right. Correct. Yep. And he wasn't even mad about it. I asked him uh, if you know he held anything against the Nats and he was like, this is the only team to give me a shot. So whatever they need, I'm here for it. It was really cool about it. Yeah. And I think he's been a fun guy to watch on the mound and actually one of the bright spots out of the veterans on this team. You apparently have read my mind and I've been tempted to switch him around with the next guy, but I'll, I'll keep it in order. Kyle Finnegan. 
Yep. I think one between Finnegan and Edwards Jr. is moved. The other being, you know, you got to have at least some kind of reliable bullpen arm to, to be at the back end, shorten games a little bit, take, uh, you know, that one inning away, you know, not put too much pressure on maybe some of these younger arms like Mason Thompson, Jordan Weems that you might be trying out. Uh, let them do some lower leverage innings and at least have a guy who's been closing games, either Edwards Jr. or Finnegan, uh, who, like, might I add, both have multiple years of control left. Uh, you know, let one of those guys at least handle that inning for them. I think that makes sense. And I think, especially when you've got a bullpen arm who's doing pretty well, as Kyle Finnegan is, I think he's got an ERA in the mid threes and he's obviously shown a decent track record. He was pretty good last year until he was potentially thrust into the closers role when he wasn't necessarily ready for it. But they're so volatile that you can have this great ERA one year, perform fantastic, and the next year you're up in the fives or up in the sixes. So I think even if he, you've got those years of control and he might be a part of a competitive bullpen for the nationals in the future sometimes you do have to kind of take that and get the prospect return now like we've said before the the farm system isn't great i've got one more reliever and then a dark horse pitch so we've got victor arano next i'm gonna say stay just because he's, he's dealt with injury this year he's dealt with injuries in the past you know the the nationals probably aren't going to get much that would really make them too excited for arano uh so i would say stay right now and maybe somebody you know, who they can continue to build with. And, you know, he's only 27. So uh, I don't think the Nationals would be necessarily motivated to move him. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think earlier in the season, I was looking at him as being someone that could be traded. But like you say, the injury potentially derailed it uh, a little bit. And maybe teams are a bit wary of that. Whereas had he performed at his early level throughout the season, maybe you're looking at a potentially really valuable trade chip. Uh, The last one, who I think you've mentioned as a trade candidate before, Eric Feddy. Yes, uh, I think that Fetty is a bit of a unique case because they have multiple years of control, but he's out of minor league options. And with the way that Fetty has pitched, you know, he's been kind of up and down, but I think he could make sense for a team uh, as a potential number five starter to help them get to the playoffs and then maybe shift to the bullpen uh, once they do get to the postseason. I don't expect anyone to acquire Fetty thinking he could start a playoff game, but somebody who you just kind of help you get through the stretch run and then you move him to the bullpen uh, to give you some length there if you need it. One of the other factors is if you do try and bring up Kay Cavalli, you do have to find some spot for him. I don't think they're going to move Patrick Corbin to the bullpen, not yet. Josiah Gray, obviously a key part of this team. He's going to be in the rotation unless he's hurt. So maybe you are going to have to clear some space in a creative way. And yeah, I, I don't think they'll trade him because I don't know if there's going to be as much of a market for it. Obviously, the Nationals should be trying to trade a lot of these guys that we've talked about. It's going to be whether there's enough interest in them to go for that. So that's all, all we had. How did it feel being the first guest on this podcast? Uh, it's an honor. Uh, I was so super excited to be on here and you got some great questions. So lived up to the hype and I'm looking forward to, to listening moving forward. I think this is going to be great. Perfect. Uh, and where can, where can our listeners find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at by Matt Weirich. That's W-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Uh, And you can also check out all of my work over at NBCSportsWashington.com. Thanks again to Matt for joining us to talk about the season and an important upcoming trade deadline for the Nationals. Another key part of this rebuild that the team is going through now is drafting and developing. And earlier this month, the Nationals drafted the next group of players that they hope will be part of the next competitive team in D.C. I sat down with Carlos Calazo of Baseball America to discuss the team's 2022 draft class. So now joining me on the podcast is Carlos Calazo, Baseball America's lead MLB draft writer, who you would have seen on MLB Network's coverage of the draft earlier this month. How are you doing today, Carlos? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. 
the problem at all. It's going to be good to dive into the draft, especially for the Nationals, who are going through a pretty big uh, rebuild now. But first off, on a general level, this was the second year that the draft was on the road and in a city like LA being LA and all that. It felt like a big event watching from the outside. What did you make of that and the overall decision to kind of take the draft on the road with the All-Star game? Yeah, I think definitely from just the, the perspective of making the draft an event, the last two years have certainly been an upgrade from just previously having it in in studio in Secaucus at MLB Network Studio, which is a cool studio. Uh, but there's just something about tying it to the All-Star game, having it in different cities, letting fans come uh, and watch the draft. In L.A., it was outdoors, so people were really just walking by through a, a pretty dense area in general. And, and it just felt like it was a big event. It felt like an NFL draft or an NBA draft. The set this year was was pretty sick and I I think for the players who are there in person it makes it it makes it a really exciting experience and hopefully we get more players showing up to the draft in the future I know that's a goal from MLB's side to get as many of the top prospects as they can they they certainly want to make this more of an event and I think that there are always going to be some issues with the MLB draft being as exciting as an NBA or an NFL draft because you don't just take these players and then have them show up on the big league team immediately there is that that minor league development gap that you're always going to have to navigate around. But I do think from just an excitement standpoint, uh, MLB has done a really good job of making it an event. Now, just in terms of a logistical question, I think a lot of people who are involved in the draft, the teams, the advisors, college coaches, there are a lot of people who are not happy with the current schedule just because you overlap classes now. There are 2023 events happening before the 2022 draft takes place. For college coaches, there's a quick turnaround in terms of the draft and then locking in your your, your roster heading into the fall. So that can be tricky. Uh, I know a lot of teams just would much prefer to have it earlier because the season is over on the college side. Then you really have a month of downtime uh, where teams are ready to go, although it also adds some opportunities for um, summer league performances, injured players coming back, uh, guys like Cam Collier who played in the Cape Cod League prior to the draft, that, that's able to happen. So there are a lot of pros and cons kind of depending on where you fall. Just from my perspective, being at these drafts, it has been fun having them tied to the All-Star game though. Yeah, and I think from a fan's perspective, you're getting more eyes on it because previously it's been when there have been major league games on so fans of those teams have been watching their teams with just following the draft in general whereas now it you're watching it because there's no Sunday night baseball that night all the eyes are on it so yeah I definitely agree from a fan's perspective Mm -hmm. it's there maybe the front offices like you say there is a bit of um, crossover there and especially with the trade deadline coming up it's crazy that you have with this new schedule the August 1st deadline for signings and then you have the trade deadline just a day later. I would imagine the Nationals basically signing their entire class at this point. Probably a good news for them, considering what we've been hearing about the trade deadline. I, I'm really excited to see what happens with Juan Soto if something does happen with them. Yeah, it, it has got to be an absolute nightmare for teams who have the signing deadline on top of the trade deadline because a lot of those people who are negotiating contracts and dealing with just the logistics of signing these players are also heavily involved in the conversations um, for trade discussions. It's obviously a scouting department, so those guys are going to be heavily involved, even if it's more amateur versus pro departments. But certainly a, a busy time in the year, but hopefully it's exciting for fans. It's exciting for us. Uh, and it's been exciting for me. So we'll see how it, uh, how it happens, how it keeps, I guess, progressing in the future. 
Yeah, I've always got to keep my phone on me just in case that Jeff Pass yeah. notification comes through. For <laughs> so, but uh, moving on to the Nationals and their draft, they had the fifth pick in this draft, the highest they've picked in just under a decade since they took Bryce Harper number one overall. Selected Elijah Green, uh, who officially signed with the team earlier this week. He was linked to the Nationals a lot throughout the build-up. What are the Nationals going to get in Elijah Green? I think they could be getting the biggest upside player in this entire draft. I think we talked about it in his scouting report. If you just look at like hundredth percentile out outcomes or best case scenarios for these players, it would be hard to take anyone over Eliza Green just in the way he can impact the baseball field. Um, his tools are freakish. He's a physical freak. He, he would not look out of place um, as a top prospect in, in football combines showcase. I don't know if they do showcases on the amateur football scene, but regardless, he, he's the son of a, a really impressive NFL player. Uh, and to have that sort of physicality and speed and tool combination for a high school baseball player is exceedingly rare. I talked to a number of scouts who said we just don't get baseball players who look like this very often. And to have a player who has those tools, who's also as polished as he is as a hitter, I think at this point, Elijah almost gets his hitting ability is almost discounted because his tools and his athleticism are so good. Because there are a few minor swing and miss questions, people tend to say that he doesn't have a hit tool. I, I don't think that's the case at all. He has hit for a tremendous amount of time against really good competition. As an underclassman a year ago with IMG Academy, there were people talking about him. If he were draft eligible a year in advance, he would be a top five player. He was on the same team as James Wood, who went very high to the Padres, uh, had an over, over slot deal there. And I talked with scouts who were like, yeah, he's better than James Wood a year younger. So I think while he might not have the hitting ability of a Termar Johnson or a Drew Jones, just in terms of pure bat to ball skills and pure average, he, he's maybe the most impressive in-game power hitter that I have seen at the high school level since I've been covering this. And that would go back to the 2017 draft class. Just the amount of home runs that he was able to tap into in-game is rare from a high school player, especially on the, on the circuit when you're going up against the best pitchers. So I don't have any question about him catching up to velocity to do impact or hitting breaking balls. It's just how much swing and miss is going to come with that impact. Is he going to be a guy who is an above average major league hitter while being a dynamic power hitter with that speed? Maybe not, but if he's just an average hitter, uh, I think you have a potential all-star caliber player on your hands. I'm really curious to see where he plays defensively because I do think he's got the tools to stick in center field. He obviously has the speed. He's got a great arm. You just don't really see players as big as that playing center field. Um, so I'm really curious to see what the development track is going to be like with Elijah. Regardless, he's a player who I think you can get excited about as a fan base. He's a player who is going to be a ton of fun to watch take batting practice. And any given night when you're watching him, he can do something explosive and electric and, and just really exciting on the baseball field. Yeah, and as you said, one of the main concerns that has come up with Green is, like you say, the swing and miss tendencies. I think that was more of a thing coming into the year and it may have allayed that a little bit but how do you see that playing out is some of that as a result of playing for IMG Academy and playing with some of the higher competition because I think you mentioned James Wood as a similar type he's actually I think he's cut down his strikeout rate in the lower minors with the Padres so is that something that could potentially subside a little bit as he gets in the Pro Bowl? Yeah absolutely him and James Wood just thinking about their careers with IMG and, and how they handled their senior or junior year summer heading into their senior year is almost mirrored. James Wood had like a phenomenal summer and was one of the more impressive pure hitters. And then during his spring, the strikeout, the strikeout questions really popped up a bit more than we had seen them previously. With Elijah, it was more of the opposite. Um, I think because of his status entering the year, 
with the top prospects, you always see them getting really nitpicked. Anytime they do anything wrong, scouts are going to be very critical because you're expecting him to be the top player in the class every time he's on the field. With Elijah specifically, I noticed that just pitchers had their best stuff when he stepped into the batter's box. You're topping out in velocities. When he's there, pitchers are pitching him backwards because they're aware of how good of a hitter he is and, and how easily he can leave the ballpark. Um, so we got a lot of breaking stuff early in counts. Uh, for me, what I, what I saw that I was impressed with is while he would swing and miss some on those pitches or maybe leak out in front or chase the fastball up, he made adjustments within at-bats. Um, he wouldn't really get fooled on the same pitch multiple times that I saw. Uh, I remember watching him early this year with IMG Academy this spring, uh, and there was some swing and miss in-game. But within the same at-bat, he would see the curveball, recognize it, and then adjust. And then later later that game, I remember him hitting just an absolute monster home run to the pull side. So I think he just might be a hitter who is, who is pretty similar to a lot of big league hitters today who, who are going to have some swing and miss in their game. But the power that they're going to get to consistently will more than make up for some of that swing and miss that maybe you would not have liked to see if you're playing baseball in the 80s. It's just a power-oriented game, and teams, teams are living with that swing and miss. I think... You're probably never going to see it go away entirely just because of how his game is geared and, and because of the, the type of hitter that he is. He's not like a supreme bat-to-ball hitter like a Termar Johnson or like a Nick Madrigal, but he's got significantly more raw power than both those guys and certainly more power than, than a Nick Madrigal. So I think this is probably going to be a guy who he gets into each level and is going to have to adjust to the pitching, but I think he's got the, the baseball ability, the pitch recognition, the bat speed. I mean, there's no question about the bat speed for me. It's, it's, it's pretty electric. So I think he's just going to be one of those guys that'll hit for a ton of power and, and you live with the strikeouts that, that come with that. Based off that ceiling, I assume he's probably going to slide in as the team's number one prospect. And where do you see him kind of sliding potentially on the overall yeah, I think on an overall list, the I would imagine Drew Jones is going to be somewhere in the top 20 or top 25. And then the next grouping of players um, really includes our numbers two through six prospects on the draft board. That's Elijah Green, uh, Tamar Johnson, Brooks Lee, Jackson Holiday, and Kevin Parada. I think all of those players will probably be pretty close. We didn't view a ton of separation um, with them on a draft board. And depending on who we talk to in the industry, you could line those guys up in, in vastly different ways. Um, teams who are more risk averse uh, or, or who are less risk averse uh, and maybe a little bit more old school. And I would count the nationals among them probably really high on just the physicality and the tool set. I mean, there are some similarities with Elijah Green uh, and Brady House from a year ago, just very advanced physical players who have really impressive athleticism and raw tools. And in, in addition to like being pretty sound foundational hitters, it, it's honestly kind of impressive. They were able to get these sorts of tools in the last two drafts while picking five and with 10 or 11 last year. I, I think I said last year for Brady House, I mean, he, he could be one of the biggest upside players if everything goes well. So they clearly have a type, but I think getting to your question, somewhere in the middle of the top 100, I could see Elijah falling somewhere in that 30 to 60 range. Um, we've had a ton of graduations on our top 100 this year. So it's it's been an evolving list. And I actually think we're probably going to meet to talk about where some of these guys are going to line up here soon. I mean, we're only days away from the signing deadline, so we're going to have to get them on. But I would imagine somewhere in the middle of the top 100. And in terms of the Nationals list, I would imagine he has a good case to be the new top prospect. Cade Cavalli, Brady House. Yeah, so I would imagine he probably slides into that number one spot. 
Uh, I know Brady has struggled a little bit this year, maybe more than you would want him to after having a good debut last year. So probably he'd be the number one prospect. I haven't had too many extensive combos with the prospect guys about that specifically. And it's been a particular surprise for the Nationals taking two, like you say, tools up high school guys especially the last two years, been a break from their big college pitching, but they got their big college pitcher in the second round with Jake Bennett out of Oklahoma. Well, they've gone to a couple times in recent years with Kay Cavalli and Jake Irvin. He seems like a low ceiling type because of his command and control. Is there some projectability there because he is still a big left-hander, potentially could add some velocity? And what can the Nats expect out of him moving forward? Yeah, I think you let it out pretty well. I think putting the the low ceiling, high floor tack on him is, is pretty fair considering the player that he is now. Although granting the fact that teams have done a really good job adding velocity to college pitchers. And as you mentioned, he's a he's a pretty big left-hander. He he's fairly filled out. I mean, he's six foot six. We have him listed at 234 pounds. So I don't know that he's gonna add a ton of strength. It's certainly possible he could still add a little bit more. He's been up to 95. It wouldn't be surprising if he was touching more upper 90s in the future than kind of that mid 90s uh, that he's touching now. But uh, he's just a very dependable, reliable pitcher. I mean, Bennett is a guy who I thought had a chance to go into the first round, just given how teams talked about the left-handed pitching in this college class and the amount of injuries uh, and the fact that he's been healthy and kind of producing all spring. He's just a mature pitcher who makes really impressive adjustments throughout the game. He can locate his changeup on the inside and the outer half. That's that's probably his 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 best pitch at this point. It's a really good changeup. The breaking ball is solid, but it's not one of these electric hammer breaking balls that some of the other better college pitchers in the class have. So that maybe is, is where you get his limiting factors. How good is the breaking stuff? If that can be sharpened up a little bit, I can see his upside ticking up, but I would imagine you're looking at a, a reliable back of the rotation kind of starter um, who logs a lot of innings and maybe can move pretty quickly through the system. Yeah, I think that those types of guys are always a little bit undervalued sometimes to make sure you're getting those innings consistently at the back of the rotation. Yeah, and I think getting him where they picked him at 45 is pretty good value to me. Just just talking with some of the scouts leading up to the draft, just how valuable college left-handers who start and perform and have stuff you really go down the list of left-handed pitchers and draft and there are not a ton of pitchers who possess all of those traits so I think getting him as their second round pick was pretty impressive I'm trying to pull up if they had to overslot him that was a slot deal there at 45 so yeah I think that's a pretty good pick for them another higher pick that caught my attention was Brenna Cox another one that was a bit out of character for the Nationals going for a high schooler I think he signed for uh, half a million overslot because he was committed to Texas yeah, we have him signed for a million and slot there it was just over 500,000, about 450, I think, over slot. And the, the rankings for him kind of varied across the board. Some had him higher, some had him lower than where the Nationals selected him. What did you think of that pick? Because it seems, I don't know if it was signability concerns or perhaps not as many scouts eyes on him in Texas, not necessarily a baseball hub compared to somewhere like California. So what did you think of that pick? Yeah, once we get into teams' picks on day two, I feel like the consensus and the board's really go all over the place. I'm pulling up where we had Brenner right now so I can tell you exactly where we had him. Yeah, I don't know that it was shocking just because we have seen so many players like this who go in this range. You just you get such varying views on what the player is and you get teams who are more willing to take risks on these player types. I think the Nationals have been more of a risky drafting team in recent years. I mean, they took Mason Denneberg in the first round not too long ago. And there are a lot of teams who just would not touch a high school right-handed pitcher in the first round. They've taken some guys in the past who, who are coming off some injuries. So I, I don't think they're 
too afraid to take a risk. We had Cox as one of the more talented high school players in the state, despite that ranking. Um, I think it's more of a projection than some of the other high school players who we had in the top 100, maybe. But he's interesting. He has some tools. He's got a big arm. He's shown good instincts in center field as a hitter. So I'll be really curious to see what the pure hit tool is, because typically when we have such a gap in in where teams view these players, it's it's all about the hit tool. Like you can have teams who acknowledge the tool set and the athleticism, but they just don't think the player's going to hit. So they have it much further down. If you're a team who, for whatever reason, believes you can hit or you have a few tweaks you can incorporate to allow a player to hit. You could have him much higher. I think Evan Carter, who the Rangers took a few years ago, was another guy who who was a bit of a surprise. He was taken higher than where Brenna Cox was taken. He was their second round pick, I believe, two years ago. But we didn't have him ranked at all. And, and that turned out to be a pretty good pick just because for whatever reason, the Rangers had done their homework. They had good history on him as a hitter, even though he wasn't on the, the showcase circuit all that much. They had the evaluation around the hit tool. So I think it can be easy to look at where the industry maybe has a player ranked and, and kind of write off the pick. But what I've learned over the last few years is whenever there's a huge gap in a player going versus a ranking that we might have, I always immediately think, okay, what, what does this team know that, that we, maybe we didn't know or we didn't hear about? So they're doing much more work on these guys at a deeper level than we can possibly do. So I'm curious to see if the hit tool is just significantly better um, than what we expected him to be. Uh, it's an interesting one more, like I said, because I think usually the Nationals have a type. They do like to take those risks early and then kind of in the mid-slot rounds, I guess, in like the four or five, they like to kind of play a bit safer from history. But are there any other names from the draft class that might stand out to you for the Nationals who could make an impression as they move into Pro Bowl? Yeah, there are. I think one of the names who's interesting and is maybe one of their cheaper acquisitions in this draft is Murphy Staley, the third baseman at Texas. I mean, he's quite old for the class. He turns 24 in September. He's one of these like COVID um, seniors who maybe had another year of eligibility. I I don't know if he did actually have another year of eligibility, Um, but he just had a phenomenal year. Hit 367, 424, 662. 19 home runs, 23 doubles, um, was one of the best hitters in college baseball for Texas. And there were a number of players in this year's class. I think JJ Cooper might've written about it for us, but just how teams are handling older players um, given COVID. Uh, And are these players performing at a high level simply because they're much older than the competition now? They're just more advanced. um, And so they can use that advantage uh, to show up on the stat line. Or are these players just taking more steps forward in college for whatever reason, a guy like Murphy Staley for $10,000. I mean, he's certainly a senior sign and he was picked because the nationals wanted to move around some money, but I think it's an interesting player who you're going to probably have to push him quickly just to get him to an age appropriate level. Um, And there's certainly a chance that he's just one of these guys who is a college performer and and the tools and the the batting ability is not going to translate to pro ball. Um, That's certainly what the money would indicate um, that he's more of an org type player, but just the numbers are so good. That I'm really curious to see if he can kind of translate that to Pro Bowl, if there was something that, that clicked with him this year. And I imagine we find out pretty quickly with Murphy if it's if it's legit or if it's just more of just another one of these college performers who is a really good college hitter but doesn't necessarily translate. So that's one that I'm interested in. Maxwell Romero is a catcher with power who's interesting to me. This, this year's catching class didn't seem great on depth. Uh, I didn't feel like there were a ton of players you could really get excited about, but Romero is a guy who has solid defensive ability behind the plate. He's got probably legit plus raw power as a left-handed hitter. 
the average is always going to be a question, but as we know, the bar for, for catching at the big league level is lower than any other position in terms of what, what you're bringing to the table offensively. Because he's got those tools uh, with power, with his defensive ability, the big question is swing and miss, and it's pretty significant swing and miss questions. But he's one that I'm looking at like further down that if he makes some adjustments, maybe tries to make a little bit more contact. Because again, he's not going to have to hit a ton of home runs or hit for a super high average if he is an average defensive catcher behind the plate. So I think that could be a good value pick there. If he if he winds up being like a backup catcher or someone who can be brought up and uh, play a few games here and there, like as your third catcher, that could be a very good pick. So he's one that's interesting. And, and he was kind of intriguing coming out of high school as well. So that's another one. Riley Cornelio was a, a pitcher out of high school who I really liked a lot and just kind of never figured out the consistency in college, although the stuff is still good. The projection on the body is still good. He's just fun to watch pitch because of kind of how he does it, at least in high school. The delivery was kind of all over the place. There's a lot of moving parts. Um, it was deception. It was a lot of athleticism. So I'll be curious to see what they're able to do with him in terms of maybe refining that a little bit and uh, getting the most out of his pure stuff. Because I think the arm talent with Riley is is pretty impressive. So those would be some that that jump out to me. You didn't take the, uh, the easy answer of names that stand out with uh, Marquise Grissom Jr., Yes, that is a good one. Uh, his changeup was always really impressive. And I think the slider actually got a lot better in college. So that could be an intriguing one as well. I mean, it, it'd be hard to draft this year and not take a bloodlines player. We talked about <laughs> it so much leading up to the draft and on the broadcast. Uh, and Marquise is interesting because he's really not similar at all to his father. They're very different players. Obviously, he's a pitcher. But yeah, I mean, that's another one who out of high school, I was really impressed with. I'm a little bit concerned over the walks because it seemed like in high school, he was pretty polished. I could be overstating how polished he was as a strike thrower, but I, I thought I remembered him being more of a strike thrower than he was in Georgia Tech. Obviously this spring, a lot of the Georgia Tech pitchers struggled. So maybe maybe that's something they just had had trouble as an organization. But yeah, there's there's stuff here. He's been up to 96. The breaking ball getting better is exciting. And I think the the changeup has potential to be above average as well. So that, that definitely is an interesting one just because of the bloodlines alone. They clearly just had FOMO and wanted to get in on the the sons of major leaguers. Absolutely. Although I don't know if you count if you count Elijah, I mean, ten year NFL tight end, that's gotta count at least a little bit, right? Where can our listeners find you and what's next for you now the draft is done? You mentioned that the schedule is crossing over a bit, so I can't imagine there's a huge amount of time off. Yeah, so immediately after the draft, we went to PG National, which is one of the bigger showcase events to get started on the 23 class. We recently released our 2023 overall list at BaseballAmerica.com. So that's where you can go if you want to follow any of my work or any of the other guys' work as we kind of approach this trade deadline. I'm sure there are going to be a bunch of prospect write-ups we're doing in those trades. And then for me specifically on Twitter, you can follow me at Carlos A. Colazzo. And then in terms of what I have coming up, uh, we've got another run of high school tournaments uh, and showcases. East Coast Pro is coming up. Um, that's always a great event every year that has some of the best high school players, obviously on the east side of the country and then the area code games in California immediately after that. So I'll be taking off here in a few days and on the road for a few weeks and getting some more looks at, at the guys who the Nationals will be drafting next year. And I guess we'll see we'll see where they're picking because it, it seems like they'd be in a good spot if it wasn't for this draft lottery that we're going to be doing. The Nationals are definitely going to be looking towards the top of that list. <laughs> we'll see what happens. I, I'm very curious to see if they actually trade Soto. We'll see you in the next few days, I guess. Thanks for spending some time with us to go through the draft. Yeah, thank you, Blake. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And thanks again to Carlos for joining the podcast to break down the draft and give us a lot of in-depth information on some of the team's recent draftees. It's been a bumper episode with the trade deadline looming and the draft in the rearview mirror. Next episode, we'll be back to wrap up all the deals that the Nationals did or didn't make once the deadline has passed. We'll see you then.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.